And it's a Monday on Today in Ohio, a special week. Laura Johnston is off, and we have Courtney Stolfi filling in. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney, as well as Lisa Garvin and Layla Atassi. And we're all prepared for snow this week, but it's supposed to be 70 when the week ends. Oh, can't wait for that weekend. (laughs) So sick of it. (laughs) All right. Courtney's got to get to an assignment, so let's get going. How might Donald Trump's endorsement of J.D. Vance upend the battle in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate? Lisa, they all wanted it. They were all sycophants for it. One got it. What does it mean? And quite honestly, the guy who got it is the one person who badmouthed Donald Trump back in the old days. But yeah, this endorsement came on Friday via the Save America PAC. So Trump is backing J.D. Vance for the uh, U.S. Senate seat now held by Robert Portman. Um, uh, and he, uh, he, this is a Trump quote. He says, he may have said not so great things about me in the past, but he gets it now. So <laughs> we can just extrapolate what that means. So yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Happening, and I'm sure there were a lot of crestfallen faces. I mean, if you looked at the ads, Mandel was like, you know, pro-Trump. Mike Gibbons was Trump tough. And Timken, you know, was anointed as the Ohio State Dem- uh, uh, GOP chair by Trump. So she probably sh- thought she was a shoe-in. So I'm sure there were a lot of crestfallen faces on Friday. So let's talk about that a little bit. These, these candidates never really talked about what they would do for Ohio. They never really campaigned on issues, aside from Matt Dolan, who never went for Trump's endorsement. They basically worshipped at the altar of Trump. They treated him like this all-knowing God. They tried to out-Trump each other. So mm-hmm. if you worship at the altar of Trump and Trump anoints a candidate, shouldn't you drop out of the race and support that candidate? I mean, if your whole campaign was, I am the Trumpiest of Trumpy, Prove it. Drop out. And none of them have talked about dropping out yet. So, yeah, they're they're actually doubling down. I mean, they a couple of them attacked Vance right away. Um, they said that some were saying that they were disappointed. Uh, Mandel was saying he was very disappointed, but he will continue to be a proud supporter of Trump's America First agenda. And he's looking forward to Trump's no endorsement in the November election. So Mandel still thinks he can win. But how can you say you're supporting the Trump agenda when the Trump agenda is behind your opponent? Look, this this proves they're all hypocrites, that none of them really meant it. They just were looking for the cheap way to win, because if they meant what they said, I mean, you're right, Lisa, the ads were just ridiculous about out trying at trying to out Trump each other. Trump has picked a candidate. If they're really going to fall in line behind their leader, they should drop out. And if they don't, they're hypocrites. Come on, debate me. Come on, Layla, Courtney. Well, they're, they're trying to court the Trump voter now. I mean, they're not. They're they're done courting Donald Trump himself. They're trying to you know scoop up Trump Trumpy votes and let them do it, Chris. Let them amongst <laughs> themselves. And let them all split up that vote for the primary, and and then you know, come on, <laughs> I don't. Care. Yeah, it's it's amazing. We had I a story. We had a story I, over the weekend by uh, Andrew Tobias and Seth Richardson, looking at how mean spirited the mud slinging has become in the final now two weeks of the race. Uh, that that lists what each candidate is trying to do and be more outrageous than the other. 
But you got to think that if you're a Trump voter and Donald Trump has spoken from on high, the other one should be falling in line. I would think that people would peel away because they seem so disloyal to their their Trump God. Well, it's only been three days since the endorsement, so we'll see what happens. But you have to remember, too, Chris, that these are all self-funders. They're they're millionaires that are paying for their campaigns out of their own pocket. Whether they see that as a declining investment remains to be seen. Except for Josh Mandel, who is getting a boatload of money from the uh, Peter Thiel pack. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What was the reason behind the Ohio Supreme Court's rejection of the fourth set of gerrymandered legislative maps? And what happens now? Layla, it wasn't a surprise they'd reject them because they were almost identical to the third set. But what did they say? God, this is this is just so, yes, another four, three decision. Republican Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor got behind again the Democrats, Justices Jennifer Bruner, Michael Donnelly, Melody Stewart, and they said again that these maps, you know, boiling it down, that the redistricting commission approved these maps that were nearly identical to the ones that the court just said. You know that they they unfairly uh, benefit the the, uh, the the Republican majority, but the but the majority of the court also rejected calls from the plaintiffs in the case, which include a progressive co- coalition of Democrats, voting rights groups, and other advocacy groups, for the court to to uh, to draw its own maps after finding that the redistricting commission in, in um, after finding the redistricting commission in contempt of court, the judges said the court lacks the constitutional authority to do that. Um, like the other redistricting rulings, the court's other three Republicans, Justices Pat DeWine, Sharon Kennedy, and Pat Fisher, they said that um, they would have upheld the maps. In, a, in their dissenting opinion, Kennedy, who's, of course, running against Bruner for chief justice this year, said again that the state's new political redistricting standards, as written, are unenforceable. And she said that the court can only strike down maps for breaking geographic redistricting rules, um, like the those that limit how county cities and townships can be split. She also blamed the majority for the costs of us of holding the second primary election for state legislative races, which, you know, are probably going to be about $20 million. So, you know, what happens now? Andrew, Andrew Tobias tells us that the decision won't affect the primary May 3rd uh, because uh, early voting um, began last week, and, and Ohio state legislative candidates have been pulled from the ballot because of the map's legal uncertainty. But a makeup primary election for state legislative races is planned for later this year, although no date has been set. But he says that this latest ruling could lead to a federal takeover of the state's redistricting process, since the deadline to draw new maps comes well after this April 20th deadline that was set by a panel of federal judges. Yeah. Um, that, 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 that's interesting. Before we get to that, I, I just wondered, did Pat DeWine, who has refused to recuse himself in his dissent, he said, I'm doing what my daddy told me to do? <laughs> it's so ridiculous that that guy's still on the uh, case. That's a footnote. <laughs> You've got to figure that that complaint's filed. I mean, they're confidential until they come out. But I mean, the fact that he continues to persist. Look, we, we're writers in our profession, and so we all can appreciate careful, thoughtful writing. And this opinion had a passage that really is worth taking the time to read. It deals with the federal court and it just 
one by one list the points for why the federal court has no jurisdiction and the arguments being made before the federal court are a bunch of hoo-ha. Like one of the arguments is that, that there's a September 2nd is the final date we can have a primary. And the ruling says, that, what, where does that come from? Other right. states are doing it on the 19th. This is just silly. And, and it, it's fascinating because it basically lays out all the grounds for an appeal if the federal court usurps the state court. It, it's You just don't normally see a state court opinion examining what's going on in a federal court. And I, I, you got to think it's Maureen O'Connor. You got to think because she's their strategic thinker. She's thinking three and four steps down the road. I think this opinion makes it a little bit harder for the federal court judges to take the case. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I, interesting. I, I, so what I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, I mean, what's what's what happens? What is the next step here? <laughs> what is our next? I mean, what's the short view here? Do you what are we waiting for next? I, I, I believe the Republicans who have had no intention of of following through and doing the right thing are counting on the federal court to take it over. I think the opinion makes clear what should happen. It said, hey. You got close. You were on the cusp of finishing this before Matt Huffman unilaterally whipped out his other set of maps and said, we're passing these. They're saying, we're not telling you what to do, but that seems like a smart path. Get them back. Finish your process. So that's what they should do. But yeah, I mean, they the court haven't. had provided there was this bipartisan map making team that the court had recommended that seemed it seemed that the court had had suggested that whatever they produced came very close to passing muster. So why? Yeah. Why can't well, we cross be, the finish line with be, this already? Because they're <laughs> so not working tired. in good faith. None of the Republicans in this process want to do the right thing, despite what the voters have said, despite what the court has said. And look, now DeWine's going to take a PTO day. He's got COVID. I can't get together to draw maps. I have COVID. I mean, it's <laughs> the whole thing is just they have completely corrupted the process and abused the citizenry. The only thing that's sad about this is I think voters are so turned off by the constant misbehavior of public officials that you're not seeing, you know, torches and pitchforks outside of the seats of power in Columbus. I think 10 years ago, you'd have had protests and people screaming, but people are pretty burned out on just how bad these guys are. Measuring for the orange jumpsuits. Yeah, right. (laughs) That was my answer. We still have the contempt hearing. You're right. That could still come together. And, of course, Pat DeWine recused himself from that because he doesn't want to put daddy in jail. (laughs) You're listening to Today in Ohio. There was a time when U.S. airports wanted to have hotels on site, but Cleveland might be going in another direction. Courtney, why is that? Yes. So our reporter Susan Glazer reported that the Sheraton Cleveland Airport Hotel is probably or could be closed down in the coming months. You know, there's a slew of financial troubles there, Susan reported. But, you know, the property is now in receivership because of those financial difficulties. And the, the court appointed receiver told Susan, you know, the airport hotel has become obsolete. Maybe back in the day when Cleveland was a hub for United Continental Airlines, there was a need for overnight accommodations, but now that Hopkins is no longer that hub, fewer folks need overnight accommodations and it might be going, you know, the airport hotel might be going the way of the dodo there. I don't understand why they need that space for parking because they did tear down an entire parking garage a few years back and that's still there. It seems like it's a short-sighted decision to get rid of the airport hotel just based on current conditions. 
because you could need it again. I mean, lots of people get stranded at airports, and you'd think that having the hotel would be an asset at some point. Yeah, I'm a little curious why the receiver was saying, you know, this model's obsolete. There's got to be some need, but maybe it's small enough where folks can just get a rental car, come downtown or to whatever hotel and then carry on the next morning. There's probably an interesting story in looking at whether hotels in non-hub airports have all been having the same fortunes, that it's only the hotels that hub airports that work. Detroit's a hub airport. It has a hotel that I think does pretty well. Or is it just the Cleveland thing? We ran it into the ground and now we're going to tear it down for parking because we want to put up another parking garage. But isn't the building in pretty bad shape? I mean, there were inspections showing that it wasn't in great shape and wasn't being kept up. Yeah, yeah. yes, clearly it had deteriorated. But, you know, what's more expensive if you decide you want a hotel down the road to start over or to, you know, patch it together and fix it up? I, it's just surprising that an airport would let an asset like a hotel go. But it seems like that's where we're headed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We keep talking about how Republican legislators have turned schools into fodder for culture wars. So how many education bills have been introduced in the Ohio legislature? Lisa Laura Hancock's story on this is really interesting because there's lots of them. And it's not just Republicans. It's Republicans and Democrats. But how many are there and what are some of the highlights? Well, there have been 125 education-related bills introduced during the current legislative session, which ends in December. It's a two-year session. And these bills are at various points in the process, from close to becoming law to having no chance at all. Um, in uh, Laura's story, that she listed 30 of them, so I went through and kind of cherry-picked a few. Um, there's House Bill 99, which allows uh, people to carry arms with the permission of the school board or the school government you know entity on school grounds in a safety zone without completing police officer training that passed the house in november it's now sitting in the senate we have house bill 105 which is aaron's law that requires age appropriate sexual abuse education from kindergarten through sixth grade and sexual violence prevention from grades 7 through 12 that passed the house in june on a bipartisan vote but there's a little bit of pushback from conservative christians because they demand they're demanding bans on uh, instruction on birth control promotion, transgender health care, and classroom sex simulation, and they want to emphasize abstinence. There's House Bill 322 that prohibits teaching that individuals are inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive. This has had three hearings. The last one was back in September 22nd, and so that's just kind of sitting in limbo right now i can stop and we can talk or i can well go on. it's what, what's surprising is that a little more than a year ago none of this really existed and then the the phony issue of critical race theory was loaded into the american consciousness it was a, just a complete manipulation and people bought it and they got all fired up and showed up at school board screaming and now we're seeing this long tail of mostly pointless legislation to interfere with the educational process. And it's, it's just kind of sad that this was all phony. There was no real issue. There's just solutions in search of a problem. 
Right, right. And so many of these bills, as you say, are focusing. And CRT, or critical race theory, has kind of become an umbrella for all kinds of topics that are not ex- expressly, you know, related to that. Uh, House Bill 327, um, that's undergone 12 revisions so far. They want uh, nonpartisan discussions in the classroom of controversial history or historical oppression. They had a list in the original bill that uh, had a list of divisive concepts that couldn't be taught in classrooms. Now, the the words divisive concepts were removed from the bill, but some of the things under that list still remain. What are some examples of divisive concepts? That's so that's so subjective. Exactly. Well, these laws, these laws would count as divisive concepts. I mean, that's the thing. Well, I want to know what are the practical applications of all of these things. What will it look like when it gets to the level of the classroom? Well, I unfortunately, think- I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't have some parent decide to take a teacher to court. So some teacher trying to do their job is going to get swallowed up. Courtney, are you trying to say something? Yeah, it just strikes me that it's not defined clearly, and the whole point is to spook folks into self-censorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't don't get into anything that maybe is maybe divisive, and and then you just steer clear of anything that's, that's of a meaty kind of topic. I don't yeah, know. The, it's scary. The, the sad thing is there isn't a problem in the schools. Teachers teach. Students learn. We don't really have this problem we're creating a problem and the number of bills that are playing to some base, it's, it's just over the top. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is paying millions of dollars in taxes to quasi-public boards the best way to administer mental health services? Or is the dysfunction of Cuyahoga County's board evidence that we need an overhaul? <laughs> Layla? Well, so the Cuyahoga County Adams Board has been making a lot of headlines lately, and and not in a good way. (laughs) The uh, health leaders have wondered aloud about their quality control standards on the programs they fund. The, The board has been ridiculed for being unable to make up their mind about whether racism is a public health crisis. And and we found out about their employee health and wellness policy where they were reimbursing expenses like golf lessons and private dance instruction and stuff like that. So we started to wonder, is this dysfunction just unique to this board? Or is there something about the structure of these quasi-governmental entities that really needs fixing? So reporter Bob Higgs dug into those questions and learned that there are pros and cons to controlling mental health dollars on the local level rather than centralized on the state level. And that, in fact, most states do it the way Ohio does it. And and as one source put it, a little dysfunction on one Adams board is really no reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that this is actually a pretty good way of doing it. So, so for the pros, having local control over mental health dollars means that you can get creative locally with your programming. You can tailor programming to the the needs of your specific community and raise levy dollars for those specific needs. For example, you know, some communities have been hit harder than others by the opioid epidemic. I've heard also of, of another Adams board that did a survey of their county's youth and discovered this epidemic of depression and despondency among adolescents, and they decided to respond to that by offering grants to local schools for programs around that issue. So, you know, also you have you have better luck raising tax dollars among 
members of a community invested in its own well-being than you do you would going hat in hand to a state legislature full of ideologues at budget time right so that is those are all good things that you know come from having this local control on the flip side of that is the question of equity Obviously, communities that are wealthier or have a larger tax base are more able to pay for levies. There are some communities that don't have the money to meet their mental health and drug addiction programming needs. And that conversation about how to bring equity to the state of Ohio has been happening. Um, And the buzzword there is, you know, how do we modernize the system? States that have centralized systems have that equity, but on the, they lose that uh, local but, control on, over how to spend but, their dollars. But hold on, so. hold on, hold on, hold on. But Cuyahoga County has lots of money. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're not, the, the equity pr- isn't a problem here. We have all the money. We just have kind of bozos running the place. How do, you, yeah. how do you fix that? Well, you know, that's, that's, that's one Adams board. But it doesn't mean that statewide you need to flip the table. Okay, but we did this story because Mm -hmm. we have dysfunction. So what's the answer for our dysfunction? Well, our original idea, our original thought, the original question was, is the state system faulty or is it flawed is and and the the answer to that question is not necessarily you do have some Adams boards that have dysfunction, but that doesn't mean that the system itself is it needs to be overhauled because of that, that dysfunction on specific boards. Everything in Cuyahoga County comes down to <laughs> we got the wrong people doing <laughs> well, the job. That's the thing, and it's right? been that way for we, forever. We and keep I, talking about, you know, county the county structure, the county government structure. You know, they overhauled that because of, of the dysfunction yeah, when we were with a commissioner system. Yeah, and that worked. Like, oh, man, we need to go back to commissioners because look what's happening. It's the people, not the system. <laughs> the commissioner system would have worked if we had good, if we had a good you know, set of people running it, not a bunch of crooks. Right? Well, we did. We have had some. We did have some good people over the years, but but I get it. It's we just don't have the right people. Maybe it's because it's the one party rule, and the Democratic Party just picks who's going to be in. But it's broken. The Adams Board is broken. Akram Boutros stood up in a county council meeting and said it, and he's been proven right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many different ways has Cleveland tried to manage its city parks over the years? Something worth knowing as Mayor Justin Bibb seeks to create a separate parks department. Courtney, I had no idea until I read your story what a hot potato this has been. I thought it had been the same thing forever, but man, a lot of mayors have tried a lot of solutions. Yeah, isn't this an interesting history? It was really fun to get the background on this. So since 1901, when the first, you know, city department specifically handling parks was created it's bounced back and forth structure wise in different departments arranged in different divisions four or five different times and it started out in the public works department way back a century ago and it's currently in the public works department but what mayor bibb wants to do is break it out and have parks and recreation be their own department with kind of getting their own kind of attention and love and focused efforts by the city um you know, it's an interesting question about whether this structural change here will really lead to better parks, more equitable parks, better programming in parks. But a lot of advocates here locally say that this is kind of step one if we want to get our parks in order. Give it its own place in city government, 
and really deep dive and, and give it its own attention. I don't know. This just seems so obvious. Maybe in a previous era of my life, I worked in a summer camp every summer for a bunch of years. It's actually where I met my wife. And in that city, they had a Department of Parks and Recreation. It was 100% focused on making sure children had stuff to do and places to play it just seems like that's the way it should be but cleveland can't figure that out it sounds like it did have that once right there was one era where it was a parks and recreation department but they they merged it yes so under governor governor mayor voinovich uh he was the only one that appears to have just a department of parks and recreation and you know that was the norm from the early 80s until about 2010 when Mayor Frank Jackson wanted to save some money, create some efficiencies, and he did this whole big merger of, of different duties and departments, you know, core city operations. He, he put that all into a Department of Public Works, 3,000 employees, massive administrative structure there. And, you know, I, I talked to a, a then councilman from that era, Matt Zone, and he said the intent of that merger was right. Cleveland did have to make do with, with less, do more with less. But in that restructuring a decade ago, he said, you know, vehicle maintenance, leaky, leaky roofs on police stations ended up just taking preference over, um, you know, making sure that our parks are quality and yeah. you know, for the residents quality. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with Matt Zone. That was a dumb idea. If you're going to give recreation to children, which is a chief quality of life issue, you got to have people 100% focused on it. And to merge that into the garbage department, <laughs> and it tells you everything about the way you're thinking about parks. I hope Justin Bibb gets this done, and I hope he puts somebody compelling in charge. Interesting story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio. Must be an election year, Lisa. How did Governor Mike DeWine explain he would excel repairs and maintenance of Ohio bridges? In an announcement on Friday, Governor DeWine said that $237 million in federal infrastructure money will be going to fix local and state bridges through 2027, so over the next five years. That's an increase of $47.5 million a year over the current allocation, so that brings it to $112 million a year over these next five years. Um, $15.5 million of the money must go to counties townships and municipalities because so many of these small towns with bridges don't have the money really to repair them themselves. So yeah, this is actually good news out of the DeWine administration. And yes, it is an election year, but hey, we're getting stuff done. And also ODOT, the Ohio Department of Transportation, will expand the number of locally owned bridges that are eligible for money from 54 bridges to 238 bridges. So that's good news. And the local major bridge program covers 80% of the cost for these municipalities to fix their bridges with a $20 million cap. Be interesting to see how much of that money goes to rural areas where DeWine has strong voting appeal mm. versus urban areas where people don't really like them. Something we'll have to check in 2027. It's today in Ohio. How abysmal is the record keeping by the Ohio Department of Health, which is yet again leaving state residents in the dark about the current state of COVID cases statewide. Layla, I get notes from people almost every day complaining that there's not a daily report from Ohio anymore that tells you where we stand. They went to the weekly report and now they screw that up. So we really <laughs> have no idea whether the Omicron B variant 
is spreading because these guys have screwed it up again. This is the only department in state government more incompetent than the health department is the unemployment office. I don't understand why DeWine is expected to win re-election. These two departments are in shambles. What happened? Well, at least this department isn't letting people steal our identity, right? (laughs) So the the state of Ohio on Thursday reported 4,808 new cases of COVID-19 in its weekly dashboard update. But that number was artificially inflated because of a backlog of positive test results that were being processed. That backlog impacts case numbers for Lucas County, state officials were saying in in a message on the dashboard. Thursday's case number of 4,800 averages out to about 686 new cases per day over seven days. The average for the week ending April 7th was about 546 new cases per day over seven days. The total COVID cases, case count since early 2020 has now reached 2,681,437. And our death toll since the beginning of the pandemic now stands at 38,266. 38, but, but the problem here is the weekly count is already a few days behind. Yes. When you lose one, like we've now lost last week, we're going to be 10, 12 days behind. The, but, the sewage counts in, in our area, unlike other states, are way behind. And I'm telling you, people really want to know this stuff. Listen, if you read The Plain Dealer and you, you check Cleveland.com, don't blame us because the numbers aren't there. It's Mike DeWine's fault. It's the health department's fault. But, we can't listen, do anything about it. How many people do you know who are testing at home and are not notifying the state of Ohio about their COVID cases? This is happening everywhere. I, but, I I submit to you that that these case counts are probably a third of what are actually uh, reflective of the reality of COVID right now in the state of Ohio. But it's all we've got. The problem is, yeah, you're right. We're not getting an accurate count, but at least by seeing the trend, you can get an idea. And because they blew it and they only do it once a week, we're in the dark. And and believe me, people have noticed, and that's why we're talking about it. They ought to go back to the daily count. It, it's a taxpayer service. They're paying all this money in taxes. Give them what they want. They clearly want to know they, what's going have on. Have they like down downgraded their staff or something? Have they are they down to like one staffer who just? <laughs> How can you possibly downgrade that staff? How could that possibly become any worse than it was throughout the pandemic? It's an amazing, amazing case. We're out of time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Courtney. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about some more news.